A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now, cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 216th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Glenn Montgomery and Richard Yeagley. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Oren Kaplan, and today we have on the podcast Kestrin Pantera. I meant to ask her if that was her real name, but I never did. But it's an awesome name regardless. She is an actor and a writer and a director, and she just made the movie Mother's Little Helpers, which just came out recently, and you can watch it right now on VOD, perfectly in time with Mother's Day. And it's also about a quarantine, totally by accident, (laughs) but it's got an awesome cast. It's got... The new Squirrel Girl, Melania Viatrube. It's got a really awesome other cast. It's got David from Grimm. Melanie Hutzel from SNL. Oh, yeah. Brita Wool from Unreal. All those people. And Kestrin is also starring in the movie herself. She's kind of done it all. And the way that she brought this movie together and how she got it working and how she got her cast and literally just like even how they shot it, it was all like really fascinating And I think you and I were talking about this before we started recording, but something that's cool about her is she just kind of has this L.A. story. You know, you talk about being in the building a lot, right? Which is Mm -hmm. like be in the place where the opportunities are. (laughs) Most of the time, I mean that very quite literally, like be on the studio lot or be in the corporate offices or whatever. But in this case, I think there's a, a good metaphor for Los Angeles being the building or Hollywood being the building. But yeah, I think Kestrin's a person who figured out what her dream was relatively um, early in life. She was like a young musician traveling abroad, realized she wanted to be a writer-director, moved out here and started building a community and making, making connections. And I think she's a really good example of a person who is you know, outgoing and connected and interested and engaged in people. And I think... A cynical person would call that like good at networking, right? Like when you come to to Los Angeles, everyone tells you, oh, it's all who you know. So you better get out there and network. Um, And to me, that's always sounded a little icky. And most people, I think, think that. But the truth is, is that if you were engaged and interested in people and build relationships and are willing to help people, then that's, that's true networking. That's really how you... Um, when it comes time to make a film, 
have a community of incredible artists to call upon and make something with. I mean, anytime you find someone that has common interests to you, I guess someone could call that networking. But yeah, I think kind of uh, something that we got a lot from Kestrin when we were talking to her is that uh, about her cast, about her crew, about her locations, about the stories and stuff. A lot of it was just finding things through her friends. And a lot of her answers were about finding what she needed through her friends. And we realized that sometimes to our listeners, especially if you are in a place where you don't feel like you have a big film community, that's a little frustrating because it's not really the answer that it's not an actionable answer. It's not something that you could do, but we think that that is kind of the lesson of Kestrin. And it is about like just investing your time and building out this community and meeting actors and meeting crew and showing people ideas and pitching things to people while you are at a party with them because a lot of the greatest work originates from that. In a way that's not obnoxious, which is important to say, right? Like it has to happen organically. Like there's a difference between collaborating and pitching, right? Like pitching even the idea, the term pitching implies that you're selling, right? And there's a difference between being enthusiastic and excited about an idea and trying to sell someone on it. And it's a fine line. Yeah, it's funny. I've t- I've gotten so desensitized to the term pitching. Like I'll be with my mom and I'll tell her about a project that I'm working on and or a story idea and I'm gauging her reaction. If it seems interesting to her or not, then I know if I'm telling the story in a good way or not. And so to me, anytime I'm pretty much telling anyone a story, that's a pitch. And 99 times out of 100, it's not because I want them to work on it with me or because I want them to give me money for it. It's because Mm -hmm. I'm testing out an idea and I guess... It is cool that your mom's putting a slate together, though. I, I think that's pretty, pretty baller of her. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my mom just, she keeps calling me and she's like, I'm seeing all these videos you're putting on Facebook. Are, are studios contacting you? Is, what's going on? How is this affecting your career? And it's literally videos of me and my daughter <laughs> like, she's like my iPhone. Why are you wasting uh, your time? I don't understand. But on that topic, I guess maybe... Uh, we have a couple extra minutes to chat about what we've been doing lately. What's what's going on in your neck of the woods? In my neck of the woods, yeah, man. I mean, I think that uh, I think that it's been interesting now that we're deep enough into the pandemic that we've almost found a sense of routine. You know, like uh, I think the novelty of not knowing what to do with your time is worn off, and I think people are kind of busy again. You know, like making time to like hang out with friends on zoom or whatever feels like a lot less pressing and a lot uh harder to do i think you know i feel like every day i'm like god where'd the day go i've been so busy um and i think that one of the things i've noticed and i certainly have noticed in you is that like some of the old habits that i had in terms of developing new skills or interests or or kind of revisiting the things the tools in my toolbox that had maybe gotten a little dull I've kind of dove back into so like I like I've always liked watching tutorials and things like that but I think especially because of the podcast and because of the you know the movie almost being done it's kind of reminded me that building out a, a marketing plan and a rollout that's significant and meaningful kind of begins now and so I've been just kind of diving in on like relearning all the tools and like the rules of the game, you know, each which change every year, which change every year. Yeah. Like the social media platforms are always 
changing what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do, uh, what, what interests the algorithm and what doesn't. And I think in these early days, when you have a long runway, you know, it's really a, an opportune time to start planting seeds and building what will ultimately become your fan base. But being strategic about the way in which you create and post content is like always tricky. And I think we, we were talking about off mic, you know, I always say that the first 10,000 fans are the hardest to earn. Mm-hmm. And that starting now means that like, hopefully you get to that first 10, 20, 30,000 people so that when it comes time to really engage and really tell people about your movie or your podcast or your, you know, cool t-shirt or whatever, um, that there are enough people there listening that you can actually um, get some sort of bang for your buck. And I think the the best example of this is Jim Cummings, who's through his audience alone on Twitter can raise hundreds of thousands of dollars on a Kickstarter type of campaign for his movies now. He still puts in a lot of effort, but because he's grown that audience now, not only does he have people who will consume his products Mm -hmm. that he's making but also that will help fund things for him even though he's probably at a level where he doesn't need that crowdsourcing as much but it it is interesting to see how we hear it all the time but building that fan base literally in a very direct way where you can send a message and they can read it is so valuable in all of these creative endeavors i mean i don't want to speak for jim but I, i know that in general fundraising is always really tricky and like whether it's you know, crowd equity or kickstarting or, or everything in between, building an audience from scratch takes a while, you know, and it takes it takes years in most circumstances to build an organic, engaged fan base. And so doing that on a daily basis and putting in the work and like being aware of the rules of the game, as I like to say, I think is a really important thing that I think when I was just directing a ton it's easy to ignore you know it's really fun to not have to do that homework of like putting in an hour every single day to figure out how to build an audience and engage people but um but it pays off well yeah i had just a a couple interesting things going on this week one is the production company i'm with finally started sending me some boards for comedy commercials i'm kind of the comedy guy at the company and Mm -hmm. they told me that just for the longest time no one was doing any comedy related commercials i've read a lot of think pieces about how comedy is really hard right now for brands in particular no one wants to be seen as like like they're taking this lightly or that this is a laughing matter in any way you know right but eight weeks in it's uh time to lighten up a little bit yeah the other thing that i think is kind of interesting that i just it just occurred to me while we were talking is as filmmakers, especially in L.A., where this is our primary career and we're always hustling for the next job to get the next directing gig, there's like a high, high, high level of FOMO, you know, even mm-hmm. between just you and me. Like if you're pitching on something, I'm like, why am I not pitching on it? I'm sure vice versa. Sure. Yeah. Um, so when everyone is just so busy working, this person sold a show, this person did this, this person just made this, got a Vimeo staff pick, we are feeling probably less productive and less interested in exploring things because we are just so hungry to have those same things sometimes. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're just jumping from gig to gig or what can I pitch on or what can I write a treatment on? Or can I do this? But in this quarantine, you know, I'm looking at all my favorite DPs and they're just all sitting at home, like doing a camera tests or lighting experiments or reading things or cooking. 
it makes me feel less stressed a little bit that I'm missing out on something that everyone else is working on all this great mm-hmm. stuff. You know, even in my neighborhood, I live in Silver Lake. I would walk around and I'd see here's 10 production trucks because they're shooting something at Los Globos, some scene or something at a restaurant. And I'd be like, ah, I wish I was working on that, you know, but there isn't that now. And I think part of what's cool about that is it's a little bit of a permission to go explore things that you're never working with, you know, when you don't Mm -hmm. have time. So today I downloaded Unreal Engine, which is this, you know, video game engine, but a lot of people are starting to use for visual effects and they shot a lot of the Mandalorian the backgrounds they use this mm-hmm. for well it's it's basically especially good at like real-time rendering yeah right? it's yeah it's incredible uh it's it, uh, unreal it is real that's the crazy part <laughs> uh and today they released this video of how uh it's going to work on the playstation 5 all this real-time rendering that is like photorealistic you see these environments it feels like someone is walking with a camera through these environments it just you cannot distinguish it from reality and it's all happening in real time and if you could can you imagine if you're shooting a scene and you want to set it now in these tombs in morocco Mm -hmm. or something you can just do it so i'm excited actually i'm a little bit worried that the quarantine's gonna be over like next week and i'm gonna have just wet my toes a little bit with all these cool 3d programs and cool ways to make my production value Mm -hmm. higher before I fully understand how to use it and how to employ it. But anyway, I'm very excited about visual effects and 3D graphics and how we're going to make crowds and locations and do all these things that Mm -hmm. people are still trying to figure out now. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. That's pretty excellent, man. I mean, I think it's, I think we're both just trying to say we're, we're reinvesting in the long game, you know, like what are the the big long-term goals that you're trying to meet okay well uh i guess before we talk to kestrin maybe we should remind people we got a patreon page patreon.com slash just shoot a pod i got a whole bunch of hats that i'm gonna mail my wife has uh preferred that i do not go to the post office too many times per week because of uh you know vi sure <laughs> deathly viruses out but there don't worry Oren kisses every single run right before he puts it in the box and sends it away yeah my whole family coughs into the hats uh just kidding a little piece of the kaplan <laughs> on their way to you yeah no but i am you know i don't know if i said it on the podcast but you know i took the antibody test and i tested negative so i did not have coronavirus whenever i thought i did <laughs> unfortunately yeah. Uh, so yeah anyone receiving a hat from me it's uh covid free and uh yeah so if you want to get a hat and you give us ten dollars on the patreon patreon.com slash just shoot a pod you can even if it's just one month and we'll send you a hat otherwise if you just want to help us out support us but you know if, if you feel like uh the podcast has really helped you in any way and you want to uh pay it forward then you can check it out if not no worries we are still relatively committed to making the podcast yeah i think so i think so for the near future uh, if patreon isn't your thing but you still want cool stuff to wear it makes it feel like you're maybe a little bit closer to being back on set uh Oren, did you know that our t-shirt store on t public is now live i did i'm pretty sure t public emails me once an hour <laughs> ever since that happened <laughs> lucky you yeah, we've got Just Shoot It t-shirts. So if you want to go to justshootitpod.com slash store, you can check out all of our cool designs. We're going to add a few more relatively soon, but if you're interested in t-shirts, um, I think at, right now they're running a sale. 
Cool, yeah, uh, it's pretty awesome. I'm very excited. Okay, cool. Well, with all that out of the way, shall we speak to Kestrin Pantera? Let's do it. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. Okay, we're recording with Kestrin Pantera. You're a musician, actor, writer. You play in the uh, JCC Shabbat Band. Is that I true? I do. That is true. I play cello in the Shabbat Band. Yeah. Uh, but uh, did they go in that order? Was it musician, actor, director? Or were you kind of doing everything at all times? I think when I was a kid, I did a lot of radio commercials and voice recording, and I played cello and sang, and you kind of, when one does that, one is usually in a show of some sort, so that's a little bit of all three, but then in high school, I played in all the orchestras and bands, and then went on to after college recording voiceovers and doing a lot of that, and then I lived in Taipei, Taiwan. And it's great for Taipei people. It's so fun to live in Southeast Asia and be an English teacher because it's kind of like being Mick Jagger. You're just walking down the street and people are like, hey, I was also teaching like once a week, like preschool. A colleague was like, what do you actually want to do? Because when you live in Southeast Asia, it's like a form of avoiding your life's purpose. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I always wanted to make uh, movies in TV like Clint Eastwood, how he would like be in it, but do it and mm-hmm. maybe like score something, but also perform and write and direct. And they're like, how do you do that? And I was like, oh, I mean, I get, I don't know. I guess you moved to LA. Were you from before Taipei? I lived in a little pocket of California that's like a little Arizona shaped red district right in the middle of big, beautiful California. It was near Fresno, a little town called Visalia. It's an agricultural community. In some ways, it has like rough edges. It's a wonderful mm-hmm. spot and wonderful people. And I had a great childhood. It's a great place to live up. Like there's cul-de-sacs. You can ride your bike. Sure, sure. And then like when you're of crystal meth buying age, like it's a good <laughs> sure. place to yeah. leave. But yeah, in summary, I moved to Los Angeles after living in China for two years. Right. But when you came to LA, I guess my point is that you didn't really have any connect. Even though you were from California, you didn't have connections in LA no no I just showed up and was like I speak Chinese everyone is going to want to talk to me this is very fun and then I would get drunk and speak Mandarin but I didn't find a way to really leverage that into a career path though now might be a great time you know I'm like I should direct a movie in China but when I moved to LA you know people kind of pick out the most unique thing about you that kind of sticks I find when you move to Los Angeles like you call everyone you know I knew one person. My dad went to high school with a casting director. I knew one person. Mm -hmm. 
And she was a boss. She's amazing. Her name's Linda Phillips Paulo. She cast Matt Damon in The Rainmaker. Mm-hmm. And she introduced me to Fred Roos when I first moved to Los Angeles. And that was really cool. And they put me in a movie when I first came here. So I had like, there was a whisper of nepotism, but it wasn't like I had like friends or family. There's no like studio named after anyone in my family or any building anywhere named after. And it's also, it's funny. I think nepotism only gets you so far. You still have to deliver the goods regardless of what hand you're dealt. You can get introduced to someone, right? But then you have to run with it from there. Yeah. But I feel like when you move to LA, if you do know that your dad did go to high school with someone... It's not like that That opens the door for you. It's more like it lets you like, look into the window and 99 yeah. times out of 100, they're like, hey, this is what everyone is doing that you want to do. You are so far from here, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Mother's Little Helpers because the film looks great. It feels great. The cast is awesome, but it's also kind of a classic example of like, indie filmmaking. It's basically one location. There's like a few cheats here and there, but for the most part, it's an ensemble in a house. Right? And so there's like scale in terms of size and scope that that a film can be in. And sometimes it's a little invisible, right? Can you tell us kind of crew size and camera sort of situation? So this was like a very traditionally scrappy, like beg, borrow, stolen movie that was shot in one location that was inspired by well like from a story perspective we were like how can we make something that can be shot very uh, harmoniously in a small setting and we make that small setting part of the story and you and who else Mm, i wrote and directed it and had i I am the the progenitor and uh, the team was my producer eva kim and my producer tammy sanchez and AD uh, Naomi Rama, and then the cast, honestly, are co-writers and co-producers on it because it was, so it, I would say that there was a core crew of about seven people mm-hmm. who were the the masters and commanders of it. But they it, were like, I want to make a movie. I'm going to talk to these people and we're going to figure out what that movie is. No, I'll tell you. So the very short version is we cross shot on Aria Mira's with whatever lenses we were able to get given to us for basically free by Charles Pappert, who shot uh, Key and Peel and a bunch of oh, other yeah. stuff. He's yeah. awesome. He's yeah. awesome. So he's an amazing supporter. So we're like, okay, we got to I, I talked to Mina Singh, who is our DP, who I'd oh, shot yeah. I shot a series. With her too. Yeah, she's amazing. So she's, she shot a series for me. She shot some stuff for the WB and for Netflix. And she came on because she had just gotten married and she had some like leftover weeks of honeymoon, but she was also in LA and she was, they were kind of like, I guess we should do stuff. And uh, so I, I talked her into it. She was, she was game. And that my, my pitch was to everyone, let's shoot a movie before January 31st. And then everyone can go into this year, having a feature under your belt. How good would mm-hmm. that feel? So I had, I'd originally written the movie. It was a meticulous outline based on personal experience in 2015 pitched it around after I released my first movie and was directing commercials for like Johnson Johnson. And then I thought after I got like my first movie written up at LA Times and New York Times, even though it was a really small film, like I would be set, I'd be signed at Smuggler, I'd be directing all over the place. Someone would write me a check, it would be done. And then that didn't happen after I did my first movie. It was like, okay, now you get to do like a web series for Awesomeness TV, which is great. Like I sold a couple of those. And then your first movie was Let's Ruin It With Babies? Let's Ruin It With Babies. It was oh. a goofy thing that I made with my friends on a 5D that I never really expected to show or wanted to show anybody. Mm-hmm. And then I liked it and was like, yeah, let's just show it to people. 
But uh, so I wrote this movie. I showed it to a bunch of people. I thought it would be really easy to make. Everyone said no. I figured I was a piece of shit and the movie sucked and I should just go like crawl in a hole and die. So I pivoted and I, you know, directed some other digital series and made money. So then we cut to 2018. It's January. I'm in the kitchen with Brita Wool, who's an actress in my film. And she was like, hey, my TV series got picked up and it starts shooting in February, but I can't go out for pilot season. So if you're like, if you want to make something mm -hmm. like do a podcast or a short or something, like I'm around until January 31st. And I was like, oh, and then I pitched her the idea for the movie. I was like, let's shoot a feature film next Wednesday. And she was like, I mean, I was thinking more of doing like a podcast or something. <laughs> and I was like, no. And then another, and then Milana Vintrip had the exact same thing. She was booked as like Squirrel Girl. She was Super booked young. out. Couldn't audition for pilot season. She said the exact same thing. She's like, you want to do something before February? And I was like, let's shoot a feature film right now. And she was like, okay, I have a house. And then um, I did that to Sam Littlefield. And then I did it to Melanie Hutzel. And then David Gentoli, who's a big, he was a TV star on Grimm for seven years. He was Grimm of Grimm. Mm -hmm. That was the year he was actually in town because Grimm was completed as a show. And he was auditioning, actually. So I was like, all right, I can knock you out in one day. Like, mm -hmm. we'll just move the day depending on whatever mm -hmm. your network tests are. He booked an ABC's A Million Little Things, like, in the middle of while we were shooting. And we were like, Dave Gentile Day is going to be agile. It's just going to be a blocked out day that we flip around whenever that guy's right. available. Right. But so it was very scrappy. And I knew everyone in the cast. So how did you, you're just friends with all these people from yeah. being in L.A.? Yeah, everyone was a friend. They were all really great actors. I knew them from singing karaoke on my karaoke RV. And they had seen me make enough stuff to be like, oh, I guess she does stuff. Did you have to sell them on you? I mean, if they knew you probably as an actor and they knew you as a cool person, did you have to sell them on you as a director? So I felt like I had to. I was afraid of asking mm -hmm. everyone who acted in it because I thought that they were really good at acting and most of them were on big TV shows and had like bought multiple houses with their sure. TV show money. Right. It was intimidating. Right. It wasn't like an easy ask. I was like, I know that they love me, but do they trust would they risk, me? Would they give me one of their houses? Sure. Yeah, it is. It's funny. It's hard to articulate how a relationship like that works. But like, there is a little bit of back and forth. Of, you don't want them to feel like you're taking advantage of them or that you're trying to use them or that you're not actually friends with them. It's like it's a precarious situation, right? Definitely. And so when someone is, you know, quote unquote more famous or something that that there's a, there's a strange dynamic there that you don't want to take advantage of basically right yeah and so i think it makes filmmakers maybe just self-conscious when in fact you're offering the thing that they're all there to be a part of you know what i mean like oh i want to make a great movie that's why we're all here you know Right. But also there is that thing of you're not using them, but you have Milana Viatrub, who's Squirrel Girl, and you have David Giantoli, who's grim. It would be silly to not use them to promote your film, to raise more money, to raise more awareness, right. to get more money for post, to get into better festivals. Especially when they're bored all of January. They want to make movies. But also you want to cast super talented people. But on top of that, if they are recognizable, that's a big bonus. It's a different deal. Know? That's true. Yeah. And therein lies the co-producer credit and the co-writer credit, because mm -hmm. this film was definitely a story that I labored over for, mm -hmm. you know, years and years past. But one thing that was unique about the way that it came together was Brita's dad died 
the preceding year, similar to the stories about the the life and death and lies of someone who I was very close to, my father-in-law. He was awesome. It's like if Willie Nelson were your dad, where everyone's like, oh my God, I love your dad. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, he's awesome. Everybody loves him. But you're like, maybe wasn't always present or like, you know, uh, traditionally paternal and, and reliable in many of the ways that we need as humans to be okay. But right. her dad had died. And then I talked to Sam and Sam's dad had died. And they all, they both died on the same day. Like mm. at the same, like in really weird ways. And so I'd made this story about kind of when you come home to go do the right thing for a parent who never really did the right thing for you. And then you're just like hanging out mm-hmm. until they die. And it's the generous thing. It's the loving thing. It's the right thing. And then you're like kind of afraid to leave because you're like, I don't want to go get tacos. And then they fucking die. Like while I came back here all the way across the country. And I also can't go. I don't you don't know when it's going to end. You just are like sitting there and then you feel like a jerk for hoping it ends before Friday. So you can come back and like shoot that job or whatever. Like Mm -hmm. there's so many weird, funny, psychotic things that go through your mind when you're stuck in this vortex. But right. And I think you had mentioned it's accidentally appropriate right now because we're all in this thing where we right. don't know where it's ending, when it's ending and what we're yeah. waiting for. It's an inadvertent exactly. quarantine movie, basically. Yes, it is this. It's it's like the emotional journey of what I feel I am in right now in quarantine. Mm-hmm. And I'm under house arrest. So that makes complete sense. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like. So everyone in the everyone in the in the film had lived through a similar thing recently and everyone felt like talking about it and everyone understood the emotional truth and emotional life of that story mm-hmm. and had their own unique thing that they wanted to bring from their personal experience to it mm-hmm. and I was like sure let's write it in like you can be a co-writer we're going to improvise lines we're going to I am the god master commander editor and final say of everything that is in the movie in the end, but you bring whatever you want to the table, like lay it out, like bring it on. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a micromanager at all about the way that they presented ideas, the way that they said their lines. I I cared about where it started. I cared about the A of the scene and I cared about the C of the scene. And I knew that at the beginning of the scene, you know, Brita was going to be bringing like some tea to her mother uh, who was not well and might, it was certainly going to die soon, but we weren't sure when. And at the end, she would think that her mother had fallen, had died. And Mm -hmm. when in fact the mother was just asleep and then afterwards she steals the pills that much I knew, but then how, whatever jokes they discovered or whatever they Mm -hmm. said to do the B, I was like, go nuts. Was there a script at all that had dialogue in it? Or was it more of a scriptment where you literally have the A, B and C beats written? Yeah. And did you worry about tone? Like that one actor might be really funny in the scene where another one would be really honest or vulnerable how did you bring without having dialogue and without knowing mm-hmm. the rhythm of a scene i'm assuming the actors are playing off of each other but you could have two actors being really funny in one scene and then you take two other actors in the next scene and they're being really emotional well, there was a through line of what actor was in between scenes like there were so many group scenes that we knocked out the tone really early mm-hmm. the tone was not hard because we talked about it so in depth beforehand. And when you're covering a scene like that, and especially because we were cross shooting, we pre lit. You when you know, say cross shooting, you mean with two cameras? 
Yeah, so we had two area mirrors that were stationed. One was over the shoulder of one actor and then the other actor, you know, across the line, there was a, another one so that you're filming both actors at the exact same time while they're talking so that if they talk or if they overlap in their dialogue, it's very easy to cut in mm -hmm. those overlapping lines. And oftentimes you're even on zoom lenses as well. So the operators can be really reactive in terms of the fluidity of the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And if an actor gave a different read or if they kind of veered in tone, the other actor would go right along there with them. So we had that take. So when we were in the room shooting, there was a very clear pattern that emerged, which was the first take was very long and very sloppy, but mm -hmm. a clear, clear, unmistakable shape and beats emerged. That's so when we continued yeah. covering it, it was just like covering a scene that was completely scripted with some alt lines. But it felt, it didn't feel like an improv. Right. And, and as a group, you can all sort of tell what feels right and what maybe you don't repeat. You know, that's really fascinating. But probably yeah. as the director, too, you're like, I like that. D make sure to say that thing again sure, this sure, time. Sure. And let's, yeah, let's just skip this thing. thing. I don't think we need it. Yeah, and I think that being an editor, so I think being an editor is the most important skill that any director can have. It's almost like if you're going to make an app, if you're going to mm -hmm. make an app for your phone, the most important skill to have is to just be a software engineer because that's going to be the hardest part to, like, fake or the most expensive part to buy <laughs> like but it's definitely the most key element that one needs right. in order for the closest to, to the app. consumer yes or for a movie to be a movie you need to it needs to go through editing so i was just cutting i was directing for my edit the entire time and i was trying to shoot all the reshoots while we were shooting <laughs> so they'd get a vast spectrum of emotion and tone often and it was very unmistakably clear by the end what was the right moment. And I, I just kind of mentally ticked. I didn't even need a script supervisor. It didn't have one. <laughs> I just knew the moments. And mm -hmm. it was really easy to edit once we were in the, in the room. Did you feel like since there was so much improvising and you're finding the tone that you had to kind of keep the crew updated as to what, what we're doing next and what scene we're shooting next? Because it sounds like... There's a little bit of a fluidity to your filmmaking style, at least on this movie. Was it hard to keep everyone on the same page? Yeah, I would say that the team was really fluid and agile. So we blocked out all of our scenes on a Google Doc that was chunks of daylight and nighttime. And so if we were running out of daylight, we would just take lunch and then like skip to the next nighttime scene and we could just flip them in. And then we just scheduled two empty days at the end of our 11 day shoot. So we ended up finishing early because we were able to just kind of swap in these blocks of daylight versus night. It was really easy and everyone had the Google Doc and everyone was really, I don't know how clear they actually were on it. I'm sure that it was a <laughs> right. unique experience to most of them who were used to a more militaristic top down, like shouting at each other type set. Your art department knew to be ready that you might pivot to this night scene, even though we, it wasn't on the schedule. Yeah. I mean, the house was set from day one. It was like Milana had the cleaners coming to her house. And I was like, don't clean. <laughs> this needs to be like an old hippie yeah. leaves here. Like the more dirt around She's is like, better. Do you, do you want these worms or not? Yeah. Oh, just like yeah. just a pile of worms like in the backyard. Yeah. So our art director came in the first day, set it all up. And we were like, this is the house. This is what each room like, looks like. You're fired. Yeah. He was like, I'm going to go work on the poster. So that was smooth and it was easy and it was agile. Yeah. Oh, I, w w this is all so incredible to think about, but I think the other layer that I want to just remind listeners of is that you're in most scenes of this movie as well. So not only are you mm -hmm. mentally editing things 
and directing and keeping an eye on two cameras at once, but you're in front of the camera as well, right? And yeah. so uh, talk to us a little bit more about how you stay present and in the moment, but also have that sort of analytical processing happening as, on a, as a back burner sort of process. So as, as a filmmaker, I'm the easiest person to direct because I'm available. I don't have to deal with anyone's agent or anyone's schedule. And I'm not going to argue about how much I get paid. And I'm always around in case we cut it together. And then there's some story gaping gap somehow mm -hmm. that we overlooked. And we just need to pick up a scene with like, you know, the protagonist on the phone in the bathroom trying to leave a voicemail for someone mm -hmm. and it not going through and like laying their heart out on the table. You're like, well, I can't get Milana, but I can, <laughs> yeah. I can ADR a line that will explain what she said. Yeah. yeah. yeah like, like, I mean, that was mainly just a cost thing and also a fun thing because I love acting. I think it's like fun, but I like adjusting myself. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm doing this thing. Where I'm like pushing it in this moment and you should just mm -hmm. chill the fuck out or like everybody just take a deep breath and like just listen to her. Or I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I know how to fix me really a lot better than other people. Maybe like that looks great. And I'd be like, I think I can act better than that. No, that's that's cool, though. I love it when an actor's like, hey, can I just have one more take? Because I, I can do a better job. That. Yeah. And it's helpful to just see it. But I didn't I wasn't checking every take. But when we were in the room, it was there was Sam and Brita and Milana. I mean, everyone's a director in our film anyways, in their own mm -hmm. right. So we would talk about the tone, talk about the feeling. And we would all give each other adjustments like as a team. Mm -hmm. It was like this weird amorphous group thing. And that never got weird. I would do what I want or often I let other people do what they want first. And then I would get what I wanted. And then I would be like, does anyone want to do anything? Anyone, any ideas? And if we were short for time, I would be like, the suggestion box is closed. I don't want your ideas. No ideas. They're, they pull up the spreadsheet and they're like, but but actually, Kestrin, if we just move cell A5 to tomorrow, we'll be good to go. I always did five takes. I mean, I'm a five take shooter. Like for this, we averaged five takes for everyone. There were oh, maybe three that we did maybe three setups that we did three takes but right. all my friends on tv shows are like god how many more times are we gonna fucking do right, this but you're like well we're figuring out the scene here this is magic this is why we're doing this take one was a rehearsal right and then there's one where like there was there was one scene that didn't ultimately make it in the movie but like an actor made a very bold choice to like kiss the hospice nurse mm -hmm. who was gay like it was just like there's no love story between sure. the homosexual hospice nurse and the heterosexual woman like it's not gonna happen so just don't bother kissing him or like please stop right. kissing him it was more like <laughs> I, I like on every shoot to pick one actor from the cast and just anytime they say anything just saying the suggestion box is closed just to that one actor yeah thanks sam actors love it yeah love that uh, but I would always ask for help if I'm like, is this working? Are we, what do I do? do? What are we doing? And Sam would be like, ooh. And every actor wanted to direct. So they were hot for whenever I asked for help. And so did you feel like this movie was a pretty big step up from your previous movie? Like, what, what did you learn in your first movie that you improved in your second movie? I mean, I think the first movie was just, can I make a movie? It's really scary to when someone says feature film, the idea of directing a feature film is really mm -hmm. threatening until you realize it's just like 26 scenes stitched together. And I'm like, well, I've definitely done 26 shorts. Like I could do that. Right. 26 scenes. I guess that's like an indie film. I mean, it depends. I don't know. I was something sure. I read somewhere, but it the point is you, more. you can do it is what you're saying. One can. That was what I learned <laughs> with the first one. One can do it. And then this one was just learning how to ask great actors to do it with me. And reaching a little farther, like asking Me Melanie Hutzel was a very big 
ask mm-hmm. because I, when I was a kid, I watched her on SNL and she was one of my favorite sketch comedians. And I was like, for our movie, I thought if we gender bended the, the flawed patriarch into a flawed matriarch, I thought that I could have a like a better shot at getting someone who I knew from mm-hmm. that they could they could be game potentially. And I was, you know, thankfully right. And I I, I love Melanie Hutzel so much. And I always imagined like when Sophia, this is like not to be like grandiose or what I thought, but like, I was like, well, you know how, like when Bill Murray did Lost in Translation, he was such a great dramatic actor. I wanted to get sketch people to be mm-hmm. dramatic. So I knew that they would hit their jokes, but they might be, it might be refreshing for them mm-hmm. to do drama. Cause most of them have a theater background anyways, and are huge sure. theater dorks and like always imagine that they would be doing like serious acting and then somehow ended up doing sketch. And then they're like, why does everyone laugh at me all the time? I have a soul. I mean, it is kind of like a page out of that indie film playbook of like a way to get an actor that we all recognize and are excited about is to let them do something that they don't typically get to do. Yeah. Right. Cast them opposite of their normal. Something that still makes sense, but you know. Yeah. That's why I just cast Gary Busey as a nuclear scientist. Um, <laughs> no, that's, that's, and you had also directed a bunch of commercials and other things in between these two movies so as a yeah. director you were I, I guess to me like when you have all that experience you become more confident as a director but also more judgmental of your own work mm-hmm. yeah as opposed to when you make your first movie and you're like yeah this looks good yeah this is fun yeah this is great. that first movie you don't know what you don't know and then the next time around you're like oh boy i could have you know changed yeah. x y and z yeah I also had never really done a ton of stuff with handheld. You know, I'd shot just a few handheld things. And this one was primarily handheld and a lot Mm -hmm. of swingles. I didn't have any experience editing swingles. In terms of lighting, because things are so fluid and you mentioned swingles, right? Like cameras kind of needs to be able to operate all over the place, basically. Were you lit 360? Was it something where you're just kind of like you know, making practicals work and that sort of stuff? Or, Or tell us a little bit more about the environment basically and how many other bodies are on set and so we lit three for 360 the house had a lot of skylights the whole ceilings were windows Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. living room of the house and kind of all the spots where we were shooting and all the walls were essentially glass or like two out of four walls were glass in every single room that we shot in Mm -hmm. so we designed our schedule based around when the light was going to be best for us Mm-hmm. We never set up any lights outside of windows to have to fake anything. We just worked mm-hmm. exactly with the natural light available. Um, our crew was really small. We just had, you know, a sound person. Everyone was lab with the, and we had a boom. So we were getting many, many audio sources. And I just, uh, we didn't even, we, there was no hair and makeup, like mm-hmm. prancing around doing anything. Anyone who wasn't in the scene was out of there. Like we, mm-hmm. I, we kept it really, really lean in the room where actors were acting. So, I mean, we did have a thing where the house was a Milana's house. So like a dog, she had this dog and the dog like walked in through a take. And I was like, uh, Milana, your dog. And then like Melanie, because she's like an SNL actor, she just like started acting with the dog. And then we were like, shit, I guess there's a fucking dog. In the movie now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It just wanted to be with us. So we were like, all right, this is easier than you clawing down the door, like locked in the basement, howling and ruining mm-hmm. every fucking take. What's so interesting to me about that is that I think sometimes people think of like when they have fancy actors on set that there's uh, requirements that like you have to make sure that they have like, you know, a big glam squad or their trailer or whatever. Right. And maybe because you had personal relationships with them, you could have 
more frank conversations than sometimes you get to have with an agent or something. Right. But I think there's something exciting about being able to just act right. and to like have killer operators like, capturing those moments. That's something that people are excited to be a part of, you know? And so it's about maybe just making sure that the people who are in front of the camera understand the circumstances that they're they're joining like that they're okay with not a big hair and makeup team or fancy craft services or whatever but once you get past that first hurdle then i think people are just having the time of their lives yeah and i i think there was a big communication over communication about Mm -hmm. the scale of the production and the reason that it might have worked in this case was that i was like you know, I don't know what you're looking to do in your career and where you're going, but, as you know, you get to have your first feature under your belt for this year and then go out and like kick ass doing whatever you want to do. But by giving people writing and producing credits, I think that mm-hmm. they have ownership over the whole process. Mm-hmm. And then even it's something small on their IMDb. But if they're in the process of pitching a TV show, mm-hmm. it's helpful to have other executives who might be looking at whatever their pitches to see, oh, like they co-wrote a movie that was at South by that sold to a company right. and is like getting a release. So anything and they, and they earned it. But so this was part of when you were trying to get them on board. You mentioned this like, by the way, we, I want you to be more than just an actor in this. I want yeah. you to help, you know, figure out who your character is, how this works, how the story works. And, you know, if you need a writing credit, you'll get one. I was like most of my favorite lines in movies were improvised and none of those people got writing credits for them. It seemed like a really easy give. Mm-hmm. I don't know why more people don't do it, honestly. Yeah, the actors getting to like talk is huge. Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. And like getting to pitch an idea is like, woo! Like if you let an actor improv their first take, they will love you for life. They'll be helping you release your movie sure. two years later. Like, <laughs> I mean, also that's, but that my actors are producers and they earned it. Right. right. Can I add one last question about production. And this movie is about mothers. You're a mother. I know a lot of the cast and crew are mothers. You shot in L.A. We all know an indie film is like one of the most stressful things you can do in your life. Like I, whenever I've done a couple indie style films and Unpaid basically you shut off your, the entire rest of your life. Right. You, you don't return calls. You don't sleep. You don't talk to anyone. How do you balance like having two very young kids and making a movie in the same city. It's not like you went away for three weeks and then came back. It's like you have your regular life and you're making this movie at the same time. Was that difficult? It was difficult, but it wasn't as difficult as raising two kids and not directing a movie and dying inside every day (laughs) and being a horrible person to live with. So I think that it was like a kind of a deal in my like marriage where I was so bummed out from not directing the movie that my husband was like, please go like show, make your movie so that I can tolerate you. And it took me out of a low point that I had been in for like about a year and a half. And it changed my life. It changed my relationship. It it, like made my marriage so much better. And I slept at Alana's house when we were shooting the movie for most of the nights. So you just kind of like, I'll be back in two weeks sort of situation. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, probably much better, right? 
It was so, so much. I mean, I actually, my daughter had her her fifth or fourth birthday party in the middle of the shoot. So I did come back like kids birthday parties. Like, mom, you didn't bring me a gift. You're like, hey, I'm in the middle of a movie. No, (laughs) no, we shot. I think we filmed B-roll at her party. There's some stuff of like little kids at Mm -hmm. riding ponies. And we Mm -hmm. shot. We just picked up a bunch of B-roll during the birthday party. Now it's a tax Um, write off. That's perfect. Yeah. (laughs) On the the payroll, I suppose you're like, please sign this release form before coming. Yeah. Yeah, But like pretty much all the slow-mo, like the slow motion cap stuff for the kids was like at the tail end of a kid's birthday party that we had You're like uh geronimo do you have a better looking friend we can swap out thank you <laughs> can we try the other pony yeah. you know but planning a kid's birthday party is about as stressful for some people as planning an indie movie so like that one two punch mm-hmm. in the middle of a shoot the shoot inside of a shoot was actually really hard but i slept at home for that you know a couple nights in there sure well so what's what's next you've had obviously south by huge festival to premiere at luckily you were at the south by that was not canceled i feel really bad for the south by filmmakers but they had a great run with the amazon prime film festival which honestly i would not be surprised if more people saw those movies like on amazon than at the actual festival i don't know i don't know what the metrics are but that was amazing we got to do it at in real life it was amazing you know when you do screenings at a festival all the famous people come for the big premieres opening nights and Mm -hmm. everyone leaves after the first weekend Mm -hmm. except for me i stayed like an asshole for my third one that was like friday morning a week into the festival at 10 a.m it seemed like a good idea at the time but i remember going in it was like 9 30 on a friday and i was hungover i hadn't slept in a week and i was Mm -hmm. like i feel like such a jackass like i can't believe i'm gonna like I have kids at home that I'm totally ditching and like mm-hmm. I'm going to see the stupid thing. There's going to be more of us doing the Q&A than anyone in the audience. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And we got to the theater and there was a line around the block and you heard people being like, is this mother of the hopper? Like, what's the mother of the hopper sign? And I was like, ah, there's people. And I didn't think anyone would come because all my friends and family had left and it was like the right. biggest crowd we'd had. It was the best audience we'd had. It was people who I didn't fucking know. They were like kids and old people and people crying and talking afterwards. So that was an amazing gift to be like, okay, mm-hmm. maybe it's not just because like my friends are laughing that people might laugh at this. That's a really interesting insight. I don't think that we've talked about on the show ever, but well, oftentimes a legacy festival part of what's so great about like something that's long running like that is that the crowds do turn out right and so most festivals that run long enough like, have those waves of like you said the big gala is one night and there's crazy parties and all that stuff but then there is a distinct shift and that can be you know almost a more enriching experience because then you're talking to the people who are there to see movies and care about movies and let, and the other fellow filmmakers who are like yeah, I like, stuck it out because I love my movie. And, you know, it's okay that not as many famous people are here to this weekend. Yeah. And then when the other filmmakers come to your movie and they're like, oh, man, I thought you were funny and I liked you. But fuck you, because this movie was awesome. And you're like, yeah, yeah. Oh, the Mr. Jimmy people liked us because I love yeah. their movie so much. I was embarrassed right. that they were going to play it. Yeah, yeah. Your, um, fest- your festy besties get to yeah, show festy up. Yeah, besties. <laughs> Yeah. So in that time, so I came back and I got signed by an agency that was a good match for me. and For directing? We, uh, yeah, for writing and directing and kind of the whole like switchblade Swiss Army person that I am. And so you, you feel like you got signed off of this mother's little helper. Yeah, yeah. And I love them. Everyone I work with, it's like a I call it my coven because it's just like a bunch of amazing witches. And they got, I showed them a script that I had, and now it's in development with a company that's like a fictional biopic that's 
adapted from a book that I adapted the script from a from a novel from a piece of journalism and then my cast and crew we missed each other so much that we shot a pilot in January that we're cutting and and deciding you know where January we're of 2020 it. yeah like a similar tone to Mother's Little Helpers similar but with a lot more magical realism it's like talking to the voices in your head who mm-hmm. say that you're a piece of shit or that you're a golden god but they're personified well, so if people want to watch Mother's Little Helpers, should they stop by your house and ask for a copy? Yeah, they can come over. I'll just send you a Vimeo link. You can watch it. Um, Mother's Little Helpers is now available everywhere on demand. And it's on iTunes and Amazon and everywhere people watch movies. And we're really excited for people to watch it this coming Mother's Day in quarantine. Because it's it was one of those things when I wrote and directed this personal story about being stuck in the house with your family fighting with your boomer mom. I'd never imagined it would become what we are actually living right, right now in you 2020. Should, you should not have been reading The Secret while you were making that movie. <laughs> you will be. Never again. Thanks, Castro. Yeah. Do you uh, tweet? Are you on Instagram? Where do oh, yeah. people follow you? What's the easiest way to kind of keep up with what you're doing? You can find me on Kestrin.com or at Kestrin on Twitter, at Kestrin Pantera on Instagram, and at Mother's Little Helpers Film on Instagram is where we're talking about the movie and doing fun things therein on Facebook. We've been going back through our protagonist's history and finding pictures of her backstage with all sorts of rock stars from the 70s That's from fun. a lot of blackout benders. So there's some fun things that she is doing on the internet right now. Awesome. Okay, cool. I have one. No one, our guests never gone first before. You are locked and loaded. Let's go for it. Yeah. No, I'm ready. Do it. Mrs. America. It's a show that I've been watching on Hulu starring Kate Blanchett, Rose Byrne, and Tracy Ullman. And it's phenomenal. It's about the feminist arguing of the 1970s. And it's one of the best shows I've seen in years. I guess I'll go with a couple shows. I'm going to endorse two shows I'm planning on watching that I have not watched yet. Which is a risk. I've done this one time before, and I had to un- I had to take back my endorsement of the bug assault salt shooting gun that you use to shoot flies, because it, it created a mess it in my house. <laughs> and my wife was not happy. But I, two shows that I'm excited to watch because I've seen a lot of people talking about them on Facebook. One is Normal People on Hulu. Have you guys seen mm-hmm. that? I haven't watched it yet. No. Everyone's talking about it, so I'm gonna gonna check it out, yeah. and then. Another show I'm excited to watch is called Upload. It's from Greg Daniels. It's on Amazon Prime. And the guys that were the showrunners on that, on Miss 2059, that Go90 series I did, were writers on this show. And they were writing it then, like four years ago. And it just came out on Amazon Prime, like this week. But it's about uh, the afterlife. You, when you're about to die, you get this option to be uploaded, to have like your consciousness uploaded into this database. And you can. S- stay alive forever and even interact with people back on earth. And so it's, it's about that. And it's a comedy from, you know, the guy that did the office and parks and rec, Greg Daniels. So I'm excited to watch that. Our, uh, pal and uh, listener and Patreon subscriber, Alex Sherman is one of the writers on upload. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, Hey Alex. Yeah. Shut up. Uh, uh non-endorsement is, have you guys seen Mrs. Fletcher? The Catherine Hunt. I actually love oh. Mrs. Fletcher. It's so bad, I think. You, what do you hate about what do you hate Well, about? I think Catherine Hahn is amazing. She's like an amazing yeah. performer. She's so good. She's so real. The Sun character just seems like straight out of an Archie comic book. Oh, the Biff guy? The yeah. guy who's just a total doof? Yeah, who's the co-lead with Catherine yeah. Hahn. Uh, they'll have montages of things that happen, of 
shots of characters that I don't care about that are mm. doing nothing important. And Catherine Hahn, I feel like it's known for like transparent, like uh, I love Dick, like these characters that are big, but still feel so re- real. And she's surrounded with such authenticity. And I just feel like Mrs. Fletcher feels pushed in every way. Well, to counter that, I will say that I'm probably more the target audience than you are. Probably like, like a mom who is stifled and in a stunted place. Like I feel like me, bottom of 2017, I felt like I was her, even though mm-hmm. I'm like happily married in my relationship. But I feel like what got me really excited about that show, and not to just shit on your endorsement. No, no, no. For, endorsement, I, I want to hear this because um, I, I like hearing why I'm wrong about these things. Well. I, it's something I've really like wanted to see for many years, and it feels like an act of civil rights. But for me, it, it landed of like older women banging young dudes in not pornographic, but like emotionally authentic storytelling. Because mm-hmm. it's something we've seen a lot with men so much that it's a trope. It's a joke. It's like given and it's this like weird, weird daddy issue poisonous like part of our society in a way. And for me, my son literally just walked in naked. But uh, now I feel wildly inappropriate finishing what I was going to say. Okay. How no, about yeah, that? But... Like, there we go. The part, like, I think it is actually cathartic for women, you know, in their 40s, 50s, and 60s to be pictured having sex and, like, having like, awesome mm-hmm. sex with young dudes. And I thought that the way that they portrayed the awkward sex in that show and the tension... Maybe it's just like a hot for teacher type thing that's like of mom like, fantasizing or whatever, but it really super played for me. All there right. Well, I'm, I'm going to keep it nice and quick. I think uh, this episode will come out before our conversation with Kabir Akhtar, but he did uh, a handful of episodes of Never Have I Ever, which I watched basically all in one sitting and really loved. And was it like genuinely like a nice little breath of fresh air in the these pandemic times you know it's nice to like laugh and like watch something light and fun and dumb but still with a lot of great ideas in it so never have i ever was like worth the the couple hours of binging i only saw the pilot but i also agree it's really it gets better it's like so wonderful it's really funny that's my son okay hi sound check yeah it's plugged in here hop off because i'm gonna finish recording you want to you want to crowd? T- okay, yeah, yeah. We're recording we right now. There we go. Hey. Can you say welcome to just shoot it? <laughs> say welcome to just shoot it. Welcome to just shoot. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Your guest. All right. Awesome. Well, uh, Kestrin, this was great. Uh, If you want to learn about all the things that we talked about here on the show, you can visit justshootitpod.com and follow us across all social media at justshootitpod. I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. And I'm at O'Kaplan on Instagram and on Twitter. And our webmaster is Ewan Williams. The music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And give us a rating on iTunes if you remember to, and we will catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.